1 Samuel 11. We've been going through the book of 1 Samuel for some weeks now, and uh, if, you, if you've been with us lately, you know that we're entering a new era in Israel's history. This is basically uh, 1 Samuel chapter 8 through 12 is when it talks about that. And they're switching from the last judge of Israel. Samuel, the last judge of Israel, is being switched now. He's been approached by the people, by the way. And they want a king. So we're going to go to the era of the kings of Israel now. They want a king. They requested and demanded of him a king. A king is going to be like, so they can be like all the other nations. So they can do everything the way everybody else does it. So they can have a king to fight their battles for them. And so on. We talked about this. And the Lord in his providence arranges for this to happen. He, he has Saul uh, privately anointed by Samuel uh, to become the first king of Israel. And then Saul is validated by three signs that we looked at in chapter 10 um, to, to show that he truly is going to become the king. There are three signs that were given him. By the way, this is the first time they're going to have a king in Israel. Imagine yourself as the first king of a nation. I mean, this is a new thing here. And so you need assurance. And, and, and Saul is just some guy you know, that, that, that the Lord took, and, and nobody predicted Saul would become king. Nobody knew that was going to happen, Saul least of all. So he needs some assurance about this whole thing, and God gives him assurance. And so he gives him these three signs in chapter 10, which we've already talked about. I'm just going to review this a little bit. And the first uh, sign had to do with the lost donkeys. You remember in chapter 10, chapter 9 10, how all this started. Saul, his father's donkeys were lost, and he says to Saul, go find my donkeys. And he went through all that and tried to find the donkeys. And that led him to Samuel, who anointed him to be the king of all things. He had no idea that was going to happen. So the first sign had to do with the fact that Saul's lost donkeys were found. Saul no longer had to worry about his father's lost donkeys. He could start thinking about the kingdom to come and ruling the kingdom. So that assured him. And then the second sign had to do with Saul being given some food. In all probability, that, that was going to be... Um, Part of the sacrifice that was offered up, some of that food would be given to the priest. So it was an honor for Saul to get that food, and uh, he would be honored in that way. That was the second sign. And then the third sign involves the Spirit of the Lord coming upon Saul. We saw that in chapter 10. And what happens? He prophesies, right? And show, That showed that the Lord was working through him supernaturally. He would not always be prophesying. That was just that one sign at that one time given for that purpose. So these signs confirm the Lord's choice of Saul as king. And then following the three signs in chapter 10 again, we saw something, another supernatural event happen that confirmed the fact that Saul was to be king of Israel, and that is he's chosen by lot to become the king publicly, almost like a roll of the dice, and yet it all works out to where Saul becomes the one chosen publicly in front of everybody to be king of Israel, further confirming God's choice of Saul's king. And then if you look at chapter 10, verse 25, it says, after all these things took place, the last phrase in chapter 5, uh, verse 25, Samuel sent all the people away, each one to his house. Saul also went to his house at Gibeah. So everybody simply one goes home. After all this ceremony, after Saul's made the king of Israel, everybody goes back to their home, including Saul. Now, there's no royal residence for Saul to live at at this time. There's no palace to live at. There's no temple or anything like that. There's no kingdom to administrate. None of that. So... He goes back home and he resumes his normal life on the farm. That's what he'd been doing before he was, had gone through all this procedure to become king. There seems to be no national uh, pre pressing concerns at the time in Israel until we cross over into chapter 11. We cross over into chapter 11 
And in the first three verses, we see the first test of Saul's leadership. The first test of Saul's leadership. In verse 1, it says, Now Nahash, the Ammonite, came up and besieged Jabesh-Gilead, and all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a covenant with us, and we will serve you. But Nahash, the Ammonite, said to them, I will make it with you on this condition, that I will gouge out the right eye of every one of you. Thus I will make, make it a reproach on all Israel. The elders of Jabesh said to him, Let us alone for seven days, that we may send messengers throughout the territory of Israel. Then if there is no one to deliver us, we will come out to you. Now I know you've read about the Ammonites. You've seen the word Ammonites in your Old Testament reading. You may not remember who those guys are. Sometimes you need your memory refreshed on these things. We read about these things and we forget. Who are the Amorites and the Ammonites and, and all those guys? Well, back in Genesis 19, when the Lord... Uh, rain, uh, fire, and brimstone on Sodom and Gomorrah. A lot escaped from that city, and he went up into the mountains eventually. And his two daughters got him uh, drunk on successive nights, and they became pregnant by him. And they bore two children as a result. Ben Ami and and Moab were the two children that they bore. And so you can see right from the beginning. Ammon in Genesis 19, the Ammonites come from Ammon. It's this unsavory beginning for this whole people group. And then there's bad blood between Ammon and Israel. Throughout their history, there's this bad blood that exists between them. Deuteronomy 23.3 says this, No Ammonite or Moabite, remember they came from Lot's uh, daughters, no Ammonite or Moabite shall enter the assembly of the Lord. None of their descendants, even to the tenth generation, shall ever enter the, the assembly of the Lord because they did not meet you with food and water on the way when you came out of Egypt. And because... They hired against you Balaam, the son of Beor, to curse you. You remember when, when Israel was in the wilderness, apparently what happened here, according to this verse, looking back on this, there was a time when Ammon could have helped Israel out. They could have helped him with food supplies in the wilderness. And yet they refused to help them out. And so, and then later on, Moab hired Balaam against them. So both these people groups were antagonistic towards Israel. So there, there's this animosity that exists between Ammon and Israel. And then, and then you go on further into history in Judges 11, the Lord sells the people of Israel because of their idolatry into the hands of Ammon, it says, along with the Philistines, to punish them for their idolatry. And then eventually, Jephthah is raised up as a judge. We talked about this when we went through Judges, to deliver them from, their, from the Ammonites. And so the Ammonites become, as, become traditional enemies of Israel long-standing enemies of Israel, they're always at them. They're antagonistic toward them. So it shouldn't come any, any surprise to us that they're here to fight again in, in 1 Samuel 11. They're back to fight Israel again under the leadership of a guy named Nahash. Now, Nahash goes up to the city of Jabesh-Gilead and begins to besiege it. He's attacking the city. By the way, Jabesh-Gilead is on the other side of the Jordan River, what I call the wrong side of the Jordan River. You have nine and a half tribes on the west side of the Jordan, that's the, basically the promised land. And then you had the, the two and a half tribes, uh, Reuben, Gad, and the half tribe of Manasseh. Remember, they wanted to settle on the other side of the Jordan River because they liked the rich pasture land there. So they settled down there. And, and they, and, and, but the problem with that was they're very vulnerable to attack. They're not on the other, the, what I call the right side of the tracks of the promised land. They're kind of on the wrong side. And also, not to mention the fact that Ammon was also located on the east side of the Jordan River as well. So they're kind of sitting ducks, Jabesh Gilead is. They're Israelites. They're kind of sitting ducks.
for Ammon to attack them. And that's what happened. The Ammonites attacked Jabesh-Gilead. And so they're in the process of besieging them. They're putting it to them. And, and Jabesh-Gilead realizes we're going to lose this battle, so let's, let's do this. Let's make a covenant. And so they say to Nahash, make, make a covenant with us and we'll serve you. Well, that wasn't good enough for Nahash. He wanted more than that. He didn't want it just a covenant with them. He wanted to bring disgrace upon all of Israel. And he said, I tell you what, I'll make a covenant on one condition. I gouge out the right, right eye of every one of you guys. That's my condition uh, for me to make a covenant and agreement with you to, to end this battle and so on. Now, from, from a purely military standpoint, that's going to be a real problem because if, all, if the right eye of, of all those soldiers are put out, then that's going to reduce their ability to fight. And they're not going to be able to... Uh, their, their aim's going to be impaired. They're not going to be able to have the death perception they had, and they're not going to be able to fight like they could have. So militarily, they're going to be nearly ruined uh, if this were to happen. But also to add insult to injury, his goal is to bring reproach to, what does it say, to all Israel, right? By this one city, he wants to bring reproach to all Israel. He's not looking to get one city only. He wants to humiliate the whole country of Israel by this action. He wanted to reproach all of Israel by this action, the word is reproach here. By the way, Rachel used the same word reproach in Genesis 30 when she says that, she said, God has taken away my reproach. In other words, God gave her a child. And so her reproach had been taken away. She was childless. God gave her a child, reproach removed. And you remember what a shame it was in the Old Testament for women not to bear children. So she said, wow, God's removed my reproach, my shame. So this word reproach means shame and disgrace and humiliation in the nation of Israel. This is what Nahash wanted. The people of Jabesh Gilead would become slaves of Nahash. They would be enslaved to him to do what he wanted. They would be rendered virtually useless in battle because their right eye would be put out. and They wouldn't be able to fight effectively. Um, all these things. So Jabesh Gilead would become the ground for despising the whole nation. It's kind of like 9-11 when you know, New York City was attacked. What did that mean? Just New York City was attacked? And men America was under attack. An attack on New York City was an attack, attack on the whole country. And so that's what ha was happening here. Jab uh, Nahash is going after Israel when he attacks Jabesh Gilead. So he makes this outrageous demand. You want a covenant? You want an agreement? Then I'm going to put out your right eye, okay? So what, what do these elders of Jabesh Gilead come up with? They come up with a delay tactic. They said, give us seven days. And if we can find a deliverer, then, uh, then good, we'll do that. That word deliverer can be translated savior, by the way. It's been used before. We've seen this in Judges. Give us seven days to see if we can find a savior. Now, you remember the uh, judges of Israel, like uh, Jephthah and Gideon and so on? They were called saviors or, or, or deliverers. When we studied Judges, we saw that. God used them to deliver or save Israel from enemy nations that were attacking them. We know God's a savior, but God used these guys as human saviors, human deliverers uh, in military battles. So their plan was to look for a deliverer. And they said, if, you, if we can't find a deliverer, then you know, we'll, we'll give in to your, your demands. And Nahash goes along with his plan. Now I wonder, why? Why would Nahash say, yeah, go ahead. Take seven days and try to find a deliverer. This doesn't make any sense at all. Why would he give them seven days? And I think the reason is, after I thought about this, I think the reason is he believes that they have no deliverer. Uh, this guy, Nahash, he's a very arrogant guy. 
He's overconfident. You can see this in, in the first few verses. He's cruel. He's heartless. He doesn't care about anybody at all. He's willing to put them all to death if that's what it takes. He's got the upper hand. He's got military superiority. He knows it. And so he figures, what, I, what do I have to lose? Let them go look for their savior. Besides that, he doesn't think they're going to find one. If he thought they were going to find one, he wouldn't let them do this anyway. He doesn't believe they're going to find one at all. And when they come back without their savior, this is going to make the, the victory that much sweeter in his mind. I believe this is what he's thinking. So they, 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 they put this plan forth, and, and Nahash says, okay, we'll do that. Now, this passage illustrates for us well, I think, the, the, the attitude of the ungodly towards believers. This is what they think. They hate God, the ungodly do. They hate, they hate his people. They're the enemies of God. Now, Jesus taught that we should love our enemies, right? Even our enemies. But our enemies are never going to love us. They're never going to love the people of God. The world is a, is a heartless, cruel place. You should know this. If you don't know this, then, then read today's news, all right? I haven't read today's news. I can guarantee you, you will find quickly what a heartless, cruel place this world is as you read the news. And, you know, people call it a dog-eat-dog world, right? That's what they call it. And, and for good reason, that's what it is. And you know why this is? Because it's under the control of Satan, who's the, the ruler of, of the world, uh, the, the ruler of the prince of the air. And so that's why. And it's interesting to me that this guy's name is Nahash. Now, that is the common word translated normally, snake or serpent. Nahash is the word for snake or serpent. It's the same word used of snakes in general to translate just any kind of snake on the ground in general in the Old Testament. Also, it's used to translate the snake in Genesis 3 in particular. Satan, the same word is used there in the Garden of Eden. Revelation 12.9 refers to that particular snake in Genesis 3 as the serpent of old who is called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. Now, I don't, I'm not going to, Satan, Nahash is not Satan, okay? I'm not going to try, try to make him out to be Satan. He's not that. But he sure acts like a son of Satan, doesn't he? And I have no doubt that he is a son of Satan. Now, how do I know that? Well, in, in John chapter 8, Jesus said of those who sought to kill him, he said this, you are doing the deeds of your father. And they said, they had tried to claim that God was their father, these people in John chapter 8. They said, God is our father. And uh, Jesus said, as many claim that, by the way, they claim that God's their father, or they know God, they know Christ, and they prayed and all these things are saved. In reality, they're not. But Jesus said, no, you're of your father, the devil. That's what I'm talking about here. And you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. You know, the children of Satan do the deeds of Satan, don't they? Like Nahash was doing. They do his deeds. That's one way you can identify who they are, who they belong to. John 3, 8 says, or 1 John 3, 8 says this, the one who practices sin is of the devil. And verse 10 goes on to say, by this, listen to this, by this the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. They're obvious. You can spot them a mile away. Any, how do you do that? Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. It doesn't say anyone who's sinlessly perfect is not of God. It's just the one who practices righteousness as a way of life. That person doesn't belong. It's obvious they don't belong to God, that they belong to Satan. The true children of God and the true children of Satan are obvious, it says. They stand, lot, stand out like sore thumbs. And, and you, can, you can tell them. You, you've, you've seen people like this. And I think this is something that we need to be reminded of. 
You know, we, we see people being so hateful and so horrible in the, in the things they do in this world, and we say, how depraved people are. And they are. We're correct when we say that. All of us are born into this world's depraved sinners. Every one of us are. We have this within us. We have this heart bent on rebellion against God. But while we are, are realizing that people are bent on sin, while they, we realize they're responsible for their actions, we also need to understand that they live under the influence of their father, the devil. They live under his influence, the evil one, Satan. They're responsible for what they do, but they're also under his direction. So they carry out their evil way as, their evil lifestyle as, as a way of life because they belong to Satan. Now keep that in mind when you're dealing with the world. Think about that. Don't, don't forget that, that, yes, evil people, yes, but why? What's behind all this? Well, sin, they have a sin nature, yes, but Satan is, is ruling this world. John 15, 8, and so people are going to hate the believer, right? John 15, 18, Jesus says, If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Uh, the world is no friend of, uh, of, of Christ, is no friend of believers, is it? I mean, the world's not looking to tag along with us and hang out with us and go to our church and, hey, can I come to your church Sunday and be a part of your fellowship? They're not doing that. The rare individual might do that if God's working in his heart. But they're not doing that. They're, they're doing their own thing. It's not a friend. The world's not a friend to the people of Christ. Now, I'm not talking, by the way, if you take a stand for Christ, you're going to find out in a hurry or eventually that, you know, the world doesn't love you, right? I'm not talking about being uncouth or arrogant to people or, or mistreating them, and then, and then you wonder why you're persecuted. I'm not talking about that. But if you're pro proclaiming the truth in love and you're mistreated for it or shunned by people in your workplace or wherever, then you'll see what I'm, what I'm saying there. And so the actions of Nahash show clearly who he belongs to. They show clearly who he belongs to. He belongs to the snake. The father of this snake, Nahash, is the serpent of all Satan, right? Satan. So as a result of this outrageous demand, and this is an outrage, this is what the world does, makes outrageous demands like this. As a, as a and once outrageous things done against God, as a result of this outrageous demand, then Jabesh Gilead is now in a desperate search for a deliverer or savior, someone to save them from this plight. This crisis situation is going to present Saul with his first test as king of Israel. How do you think he's going to respond? Well, that brings us to the second point, the proofs of Saul's leadership. Verses 4 to 13, the proofs of, of Saul's leadership. Saul will now show evidence that he has been chosen by God to be the leader. I know that may sound, sound strange. So I've read the story of Saul. He's not going to show it yet. He is going to show evidence in this chapter. And chapter 10, and that's, by the way, his leadership's already been established. And so we saw that in chapter 10. God has established him to be the leader. It says in chapter 10 that God changed him into another man. It says God gave him another heart. And in that context, it's talking about him becoming king of Israel. It doesn't mean he was born again. It's not saying that. It means simply in the context God fitted him to become the leader of Israel. God gave him the ability to become the king of Israel. He enabled him to do that job. Uh, now, just because he was enabled to do the job of becoming a king doesn't mean that <clears throat> you know, he was guaranteed success as a king because he still had to obey the will of God. He still had to do what God wanted him to do. He he wasn't guaranteed success because he was given the ability to do it. He still had to live and walk in the ways of God, right? Remember Deuteronomy 17? It talks about when one day when you get a king Israel, 
this king is going to be, have to be one who reads in the law of the Lord every day of his life. He's going to have to read in the law of the Lord, the word of God, and he's going to, have to be, in order to learn to fear the Lord his God. As he reads in the scriptures, he's going to learn to fear God because he's going to see what, what God wants and what God hates. And so he's going to grow in his fear of God. He should. And so just because Saul has been given the right to rule and the ability to rule does not give him a free pass to do as he pleased. It doesn't give him that free pass. And, you know, you can have God-given ability. God can, can give you an ability to do something. He can gift you in a certain area to do something. You can have all the potential in the world to do something for God, and God can give you this. But if you walk contrary to God's word and his, his will, guess what? You're, you're not, it's not going to work out the way that you want it to work out. That, all that ability and that gifting and potential can go right down the drain if we don't walk with God. And so we're going to see in this chapter, and this is an interesting chapter, that Saul gets off to a great start. He gets off to a great start in his reign as king. So what are the proofs of his leadership? How does he prove he's a leader? Number one, he's empowered by the Spirit. Verses 4 to 6, he's empowered by the Spirit. Verse 4 says, Then the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul. Saul lived in Gibeah. And it says that they spoke these words in the hearing of the people, and all the people lifted up their voices and wept. In other words, they told them, look, Nahash, the Ammonite, is threatening Israel, and, and so we, we've got to do something about the situation. And the people react with emotionally. They weep. Verse 5, now behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen, and he said, what is the matter with the people that they weep? So they, re, they related to him the words of the men of Jabesh. Then the Spirit of God came upon Saul mightily when he heard these words, and he became angry. So these messengers are sent to Gibeah, probably a trip of maybe over 40 miles, and they tell the people there what's happening. The people react emotionally. They're weeping. They're crying. What are we going to do? This is a horrible situation. We're under attack, basically. Now, where's Saul when all this is happening? He doesn't hear this news. All the people of the town hear this news. He doesn't hear it. Well, in verse 5, it says, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen. He's not in front of the nation at this time. He's behind the oxen. He's behind the oxen. He's, he's at the farm. He's working again at the farm. Why is he doing that? Because there's no official assignment yet as the king of Israel. He just goes back to his duties. After all that ceremony in chapter 10, simply going about his work, his duties, as he should be doing at this time. But look what happens when he hears about the threat of the Ammonites. Look what happens in verse 6. Verse 6 says, Then the Spirit of God came upon Saul mightily. That's the sovereign work of God right there validating again God's sovereign choice of Saul and when he heard these words and he became very angry. Now, this is the second time that Saul is, is empowered by the Spirit. Not filled internally with the Spirit, empowered by the Spirit. The first time was in chapter 10, verse 10. That was the third sign validating his leadership uh, as, as the new king. And there, when, he, when the Spirit of God came upon him there, he prophesied, right? It says he prophesied. But now, this time when the Spirit of God comes, comes upon him, what happens to him? He gets very angry. <laughs> he gets very angry. You could literally, literally, this is, his anger burned greatly. He is hopping mad. He's hot. He's very upset. And, and he's got good reason to be, because Nahash had made this outrageous demand that all the men are going to have their right eye bored out, and Saul's, what? And he, he's under the influence of the Spirit of God, and he gets very, very angry. Because why? 
because he realizes how evil this is, this demand by Nahash. He realizes how unjust all this is, how evil it is. And so he, it's depraved what Nahash wants to do. And so Saul reacts in righteous indignation. He reacts properly as he should have. Now, usually people don't think of, <clears throat> uh, of uh, people getting mad when the Spirit of God comes upon them. You don't think, oh, the first thing that's going to happen to me when I have the Spirit of God, I'm going to get mad and angry. Now, some people are mad and angry in the church, but it's not because the Spirit of God has anything to do with it, okay? They're mad and angry because they're, that's somebody else, maybe. But we think of people's actions when the Spirit of God comes upon them in the Old Testament. Like, for example, uh, Othniel, uh, Gideon, Jephthah, all those guys and judges, the judges of Israel, when the Spirit of God came upon them, they defeated their enemies. They took action, right? They did something. They went out and fought militarily, and they took action. The Spirit of the Lord comes upon Saul here, and he becomes angry. One writer called this anger here, Spirit-inspired rage. And that's a good description. It's inspired by the Spirit. He's in a rage. His anger burned, burned greatly. Now, let me ask you a question. Is anger a mark of the Spirit's work? I've been reading that book, Strange Fire, lately, and talking about the, how, how you can know how the Spirit is working or not working. Is, is anger a mark of the Spirit's work in a person's life? I think it is. Righteous anger is. Righteous anger because the Lord is angered by evil, isn't he? Isn't the Lord angered by injustices all over the Old Testament? Every time someone commits an injustice, he's railing against that constantly. And so I think the Lord's upset about things that are just mean and, and evil and, and unjust. And we see that in the life of our Lord as well. Uh, at the baptism of Jesus, at the, the beginning of his ministry, the Holy Spirit comes upon him, right? Like a dove, it says. And then in Acts 10.38, it says, You know Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Jesus always lived under the power and influence of the Spirit. It was just a daily thing with him. It was always that way with him. He lived that way. And so it was, anyway, you could see it in his attitude. You could see it in his actions as well. In fact, what happened when Jesus saw the money changers in the temple? He was in a, in a rage, basically. He, he began to clear them out. of. The, he overthrew their tables. He was so upset and so mad. And that was righteous for him to do that. He was offended because these people had the gall to make his father's house a place of business, right? And so he was mad and angry, righteously so, about that. What other, what other reaction could our spiritual Savior have than to be upset and angry about evil and, and injustice, injustice taking place? In Mark 3... The Pharisees showed their hypocrisy when they were watching to see if Jesus would dare heal anybody on the Sabbath day. They're watching, waiting. Let's see if he heals somebody on the Sabbath day because they're out to get him, right? And it says in verse 5 of Mark 3, after looking around at them with anger, Jesus, Jesus did. He looked at, at them with anger. He was grieved at their hardness of heart. Again, this anger is perfectly justified from our Savior's point of view, because it's a righteous anger, and it's, it's a godly anger, and he should be mad at the evil that he sees there. People, you know, a guy, he can help out here, and they don't want him helped out because they're hypocritical Pharisees. In Hebrews chapter 1, when it describes the Son of God, it says in verse 9 you, about the Son of God, you have loved righteousness and what? You've hated lawlessness. You've hated lawlessness. And so that's what... One of, the, one of the marks of a, of a spiritual believer is that he or she will hate that which is evil. They'll hate that which is unjust, hate that which is wrong, hate that which is sinful, right? 
When you hear about babies being aborted, what's your reaction? When you hear about people being abused in some way or another, how do you react to that? When you hear about the Supreme Court making decisions that are anti-God, anti-Christ, and against the Word of God, how do, you, how do you react to that kind of thing? Are you bothered by that? Let me take it a step further. What, if, what about your own sin and disobedience to God? Are we bothered by that? Does that bother us? Or we say, well, that's, that's not the same thing. Because I can be mad about somebody else's evil, but not my own. And see, that's where we need to... It's not just the sins of a corrupt society that's the problem here. It's our own sin, right? We need to be mad and upset about our own sin. Learn, learn to hate our own sin. And that's only going to happen as we yield ourselves to the Spirit of God. And as we are submitted to the Word of God. And, and that's what Saul... Well, that's what we have in chapter 11. Saul is empowered by the Spirit of God. In this chapter, Saul doesn't get angry because of self-will, because of petty jealousies, as he will later on. But he gets angry because of, of injustice that's taking place. In chapter 11, we're gonna, we are seeing Saul operate under the control of the Spirit. We're, gonna, we're seeing a Saul that should stay this way the rest of his career. This is the kind of Saul we're seeing here. Years ago, I read a book that I thought was... A great book. Still think it is great. Now I haven't read it in a long time, so don't say, "Oh, Mark, I read the book," and then page four says something that's horrible. You know, I don't remember everything it says. Okay, I told somebody I recommended a book one time, and they read it, and then later on came back to me and said, "How could you recommend this book? Page fifty-six says this." I'm thinking, "Can you read? Can you not read discerningly?" You know. Anyway, I read a book called Spiritual Leadership by Oswald Sander years ago. He says in that book this. He says this. This direct quote. The one indispensable requirement for leadership is to be filled with the Spirit. That's the one indispensable requirement. Spiritual leadership can only be exercised by spiritual men. And that's true. Whatever else a guy is, uh, in, in the pulpit or out of it, whatever, or anybody in the church for that matter, uh, is, you know, if he's not controlled by the Spirit, if she's not controlled by the Spirit, then there's a big problem there, right? That's indispensable. Leadership in the church is carried out in the, in the power of the flesh. It's going to be misdirected. It's going to be opinionated. It's going to be you know, driven by feelings, and it's ultimately going to cause harm. And so the church needs spiritual directed leadership. Not, you know, as I say that, I, I'm thinking, Lord, help me to be that way, right? I mean, we want you to pray that we'll be that way. We're, not, we're just men. And we need spiritual, spiritually, uh, spirit-controlled people in the church. Same thing. All of us need to be that way to do the work properly. And so pray that we'll be that way in this church. So Saul's empowering by the Spirit, sovereign empowering by the Spirit, shows he's chosen to be God's leader. Here's another proof. Verse 7, he's authoritative. Not only is he controlled by, or empowered by the Spirit, he's authoritative. Verse 7 says, He took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout the territory of Israel by the hand of messengers, saying, Whoever does not come after Saul and after Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. Then the dread of the Lord fell on his people, and they came out as one man. Now whose oxen did he kill? I think literally it's probably uh, the construction of it. He took the yoke of oxen. I think it's his oxen, personally, that he took. And uh, the oxen he had been plowing with, he just came from the farm. And I think he took his own oxen and he, and he cut them up into pieces. And he sent them throughout all Israel. It reminds us of what, what happened at the end of Judges, doesn't it? And, and it was a message. In other words, he said, whoever does not come after Saul, it's going to be, this is what I'm going to do to your oxen. Uh, in other words... He's putting them under a curse based on a condition. You come follow me to battle, and everything's going to be good. You don't, you're going to have problems, okay? 
And I'm not sure if he's only threatening their oxen or property or maybe their lives as well. I'm not real sure what he's doing here, but whatever he's threatening, it works. Everybody shows up. It says in verse 7, Then the dread of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out as one man. See, the Lord's behind all this, right? He's uniting Israel. He's putting his fear into their hearts. The dread of the Lord is in their hearts. That means his terror, his fears struck their hearts. And he's, the Lord's behind this, and he's, he's uniting Israel and saying, you better get out here to fight. Everybody came. Nobody stayed home. Remember in Judges 20, I think it is, that one city stayed home? We're not coming to fight. That's not what's happening here. Everybody comes to fight here. Nobody stays home. They're united as one man to face the enemy. And by the way, all the while, it's Saul that God is working through to bring the people together. Saul is the one who gets mad. Saul is the one who sends out the oxen. Saul is the one who says, you better get here. We've got a job to do to protect our people. Saul is the one doing this. You no wonder, as you you think through this, is this the same Saul we encountered in chapters 9 and 10? Is this the same guy who seemed to be out of touch spiritually? Is this the same guy who seemed to be fearful? Is this the same guy who hid behind the baggage and didn't want to be the king and they couldn't find where he was and they had to go looking for him until they found him? Is that the same Saul? The Saul in chapter 11 is now authoritative. He's taking charge. He's, he's, dare I say it, he's leading. He's leading the people now. He's leading with the divine authority. Now this is what can happen to the most unlikely person in, in, our, in, the, in, the, in the room. The most unlikely person in the church can be, once he's empowered by the Spirit of God, that person can become a force for God. Not in his own strength, of course, and not for his own glory, but because God is strengthening him to do this. The Spirit of God can make all the difference in the world. I guess that's the biggest point of this message. The Spirit of God can make all the difference in the world in your life. He can take a timid, fearful farm boy who was hiding behind the baggage like Saul and turn him into this authoritative leader. He can take a fisherman who denies Christ three times, Peter, and make him a leader in the early church, a leading apostle in the early church. That being the case, do you think he can take you and I and in our timidity and our fearfulness and our weakness and our feebleness with our limitations and all our weaknesses, weaknesses, do you think he can take us and use us to glorify his name? He did it with Saul. He can do it with anybody. Saul had no clue, had no intentions of becoming a leader of anything. And the Lord can make... By the way, he may not make you a leader per se, but he can take every believer and use them for his glory when he controls you by his spirit. And what the Lord really wants for us is to be yielded to the spirit, right? Submitted to his word. And in Saul's case, under the empowering of the spirit, he becomes an authoritative leader. But there's another proof that indicates his leadership is from God, and that is, thirdly, he's confident. He's confident in verses 8 through 11. Verse 8, these people all come out. Verse 8 says, he numbered them in Bezek, and the sons of Israel were 300,000, the men of Judah 30,000. They said to the messengers who had come, thus shall you say to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, tomorrow, by the time the sun is hot, you will have deliverance. So the messengers went and told the men of Jabesh, and they were glad. Then the men of Jabesh said, tomorrow we will come out to you, and you may do to us whatever seems good to you. The next morning Saul put the people in three companies, and they came out into the midst of the camp, at the morning watch, and they struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. Those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. Saul's confident. He sends out word. Uh, he sends out quite the word, right, with the illustration involved with the oxen. 
330,000 men show up as one man united to fight. They show up for duty at a place called Bezek. Now, Bezek is much closer than Gibeah to Jabesh Gilead, maybe only 10 miles away or so. They're getting stationed for the battle. They're getting closer to the, to the war. But notice the confidence of Saul in verse 9. He says, by, tomorrow, by the time the sun is hot, you will have deliverance. You're going to have it. This is not the same Saul we saw in verse, chapters 9 and 10. This is not an arrogant Saul. This is not an overconfident Saul. This is a Saul who's trusting in God because God, Saul sees that God's in charge of this operation. He sees what's happening here. You know, and, and he knows the Lord's guiding him. And we can never be confident in ourselves. Confidence is not to be placed in ourselves. Place no confidence in the flesh, Paul said. Confidence isn't to be placed in our circumstances. But confidence is to be put in God, right? If we put it anywhere else, it's misplaced. Put it in anything else, anybody else, it's misplaced confidence. And so the men of Jabesh Gilead told the Ammonites that the next day they would come out, and the Ammonites, they're, they're misleading them. And now the Ammonites could do to them whatever seemed good to them. By the way, that phrase, whatever seemed good to them, is literally this, whatever's good in your eyes. They told the, the, they told the Nahash, come out tomorrow and do whatever's good in your eyes. In other words, kind of a play on words. You want to put out a right eye? Come out tomorrow and just do whatever you need to do, whatever's good in your eyes to us. Kind of drawing them in for the trap, right? Kind of a trap. And while Saul was confident in God, the Ammonites are overconfident in themselves because of their arrogance. And so Saul leads a surprise attack in the morning watch. That's between 2 a.m. and 6 a.m. in the morning. A surprise attack, and he defeats them soundly, right? Let me ask you a question. Do you think the people now believe Saul is the strong leader? Do you think now they believe? I think they do. He's proven himself in battle. He has shown his authority, his divine authority. He has shown his confidence in God. He's, uh, his leadership has been empowered by the Spirit. And then there's a, a final proof of his leadership. He's wise. Saul is wise. Look at verse 12. Chapter 11, the people said to Samuel, Who is he that said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men that we may put them to death. But Saul said, Not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has accomplished great, the Lord has accomplished deliverance in Israel. Now, it says in verse 12, Who said that Saul, shall Saul reign over us? Who was the one questioning Saul's authority and, and possible reign as king? Look at chapter 10, verse 27. That's where that came from. When Saul was chosen to be king, everybody was on board except a handful of guys. In verse 27 it says, But certain worthless men said, How can this one, this guy Saul, how can this one deliver us? And they despised him, and they did not bring him any present. So these worthless men had criticized this choice of Saul as king. They said, Who is this guy? Where did he come from? We don't know who this guy is. How can he lead us in the battle? How can he become our king? And so they're, that's who they're, in, in chapter 11, now they're saying, who said that Saul couldn't be the king? Let's put those guys to death after this battle took place and they won. But Saul exercises wise leadership in this whole thing. He shows what's truly important. What was important? The victory over the Ammonites that the God had accomplished, right? That was what was important. You know, one of the things we've got to be careful with, especially in the church, is getting off on a side issue. People are always bringing side issues up. Look. They want to get us off the main track of what we're doing here. And they want to go somewhere else with it. But a church should focus on the major issues of exalting Christ and preaching the word and evangelism and, and disciple making and things of that, of that issue. This is what we need to 
focus on, but inevitably someone comes along and says, hey, let's get off the track and do my thing that I've got in mind here, the thing that I want to do. Something lesser, yeah, it's always something lesser somebody has in mind, by the way, when they say these kind of things. It's their personal opinion on how a church should be run. Or it's, it, it could be a personal grudge they have against another believer or, or a number of distractions. And that's what was happening here in chapter 11. Saul won this great victory, and, a guy, and the people come up and say, hey, let's kill those guys that said that Saul shouldn't be king. And Saul says, wait a minute. Let's focus on what's important here. And he exercises wise leadership. You know, it's important for us to, stay, to keep that which is important in front of us as a church always and stay away from the side issues. It's always going to be easy to major on the minors. Somebody comes in with an axe to grind. Somebody comes in with an agenda to push. Somebody, has a, somebody comes in with their spiritual their, their baggage. They bring with them into our church. This is why we have the process of, when we have members here, where we, you know, we tell you to send a membership form in, and then we hope we can find that membership form. <laughs> That's my fault. We do that, and then we interview people. We interview people. Why? We want people to know, are you on board with us? Have you read our statement of faith? Are you on the same page with us? So we can all go forward together so we won't get off on side issues. That's why we do that. And Saul made the main thing the main thing here. And, that's, and, and especially did he hit on the really important thing, and that is, look, God delivered us. Why are you bringing up this issue for from the past? Forget about it. It's secondary. It's not even important. God delivered us. And this is the key in this chapter. Three times in this chapter it speaks of God's deliverance, or deliverance, rather. Verse 3, it says, the people of Jabesh Gilead are looking for, they're looking for a deliverer, right? A savior. In verse 9, Saul says, tomorrow by the time the sun is hot, you will have deliverance. In verse 13, he says, today the Lord has accomplished deliverance in Israel. We're talking about the leadership of Saul in this chapter, and, 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 and he leads him to victory. But let's not forget who's behind all of this. The Spirit of God, right? It's the Holy Spirit of God that's behind all of this. It's the, he's the one who came upon Saul. He's the one who helped with Saul's human leadership to unite the people. Saul's the instrument that God's working through, but the true Savior is the Lord, and Saul recognizes that. God has delivered us today. He's done this great victory, and he saw it, and he, and he, and he gave God the credit. You know, every judge the Lord worked through <clears throat> back in Judges and up to, through 1 Samuel would have been an abject failure had it not been for the Spirit's enabling. It would have been a total failure. No one can lead... No one can accomplish anything for God outside of the Spirit of God working through these people. You know, if you're looking for a Savior tonight, by the way, you're here looking for a Savior like the men of Jabesh Gilead did, I can tell you there's only one Savior, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. In Acts it says, and there's salvation in no one else, for there's no, one, there's no other name under heaven that has been given of men by which we must be saved. And that's the truth. Christ is the Savior. And by the way, no one's looking for that Savior. No one's looking for that Savior because Jesus, it says, came to seek and to save that which was lost. He's looking for sinners that he's, he's calling to himself. And so Saul had it right when he says, today the Lord has accomplished deliverance. The Lord has done this. Saul proved himself as the leader of Israel in his first test he's given and, and because God worked through him. And then finally, the reaffirmation of Saul's leadership Verses 14 and 15, the reaffirmation of Saul's leadership, it says in verse 14, Then Samuel said to the people, Come and let us go to Gilgal and renew the kingdom there. 
So all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they also offered sacrifices of peace offerings before the Lord, and there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. Now, this reaffirmation, this renewing of the kingdom, Saul's won this great victory. Let's, let's renew the kingdom. Let's, you know, let's reaffirm the kingdom. It takes place in another city, this time Gilgal. Now, Gilgal was the place where Joshua, if you recall back in Joshua 4 and 5, set up those memorial stones to, as a memorial to God for taking them through the Jordan River. And so it's this fitting place to reaffirm the leadership of Saul. It's a great place to do that in light of the first crisis that came to his kingship. And so they, re, they reaffirmed the kingdom there. And in, in 11, chapter 11, verse 15, it's just completely different from chapter 10, verse 27. There's this complete unity now. Unlike chapter 10, complete unity. There's worship. There's joy that takes place. Why? Because a spirit-empowered man followed the Lord and gave credit, all credit to God. That's why. You know, the Lord will gladly use Saul in his kingship if Saul will submit himself to God's will and commit himself to the Lord and will work under the empowering of the Spirit. God will gladly use Saul. If Saul, even though, even though the people demanded a king and it was all crazy the way they did it, God works through all these things anyway in his providence to bring out his perfect will. And God will gladly use Saul if he will commit himself to God. And he will gladly use us and graciously use us if we will submit ourselves to the Spirit of God as well. Our feeble lives yielded to his Spirit. He can use us just like he used Saul. Zechariah says in Zechariah 4.6, It is not by might nor by power, but what? but by my spirit, right? Says the Lord. That's how, that's how it's done. Whatever we accomplish of any eternal good law is, comp- is accomplished because the spirit of God is working through us. Outside of that, forget it. It's not going to happen. So let's pray tonight as we close that the Lord will work through this church, work through us to accomplish his will. Let's pray. Lord, you thank you for this time tonight, for your word. And we do pray, we commit ourselves to you again tonight, anew and afresh that the Spirit of God would take us and use us uh, to do what you would have us to accomplish in this church, Lord, that we would seek to exalt you, seek to preach your word, uh, seek to be yielded to your Spirit so that you might be honored in all things. We just pray you'll be glorified in this church uh, every day. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.